Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. Sadly, Jeff is out tonight due to some scheduling conflicts, but he'll be back with us next week. But as always, is joining me live is Mr. Henry Sledge. Henry, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well, my friend. How are you? Good. Um, little off-basis little update. <laughs> Last week we were discussing, we didn't have a show because for the What's the Scuttlebutt audience, we've been cranking along pretty good since you joined, and you know we've been pretty busy and things have been getting crazy. I said, hey, you know what? Let's take off a week. Let's reorganize and come up with something for next week. And you, you sent me some photos. You said, hey, can you post these online because I'm dealing with a flood. Now, I'm in Florida. I deal with hurricanes. Um, I grew up in Ohio and Kentucky. When someone sends you a text message saying they're dealing with a flood, you just assume their sump pump went out and their basement's flooding. And so, and I was like, well, I hope everything turns out all right. To which you reply, well, we're fine here, but people are lost up in another township. And I was like, oh, he means like a real legitimate flood. So first and foremost, how's everything? I mean, it's been two weeks now, but I do apologize yeah. sometimes through text messages. You know, when you say I'm dealing with a flood, I'm just like, oh his basement's flooding. I hope some of his, his artifacts didn't get runs. I hope everything's no. good. You're like, no, there's people missing Don. You're not understanding we, me. No, so. no. We had, that's all good. We, we had in Hoover, Alabama here, we had approximately eight to 12 inches of rain in a 24 hour period, which, you know, is biblical proportion. And so we, we had a lot of water right here on my property, but I mean, as far as any, encroachment into the house i mean it was it was a little bit you know just enough to get my wife and me up with the i was out in the yard in this cold driving rain trying to get a sump pump set up and i'm it the things we think about don you know with the things we're interested Mm. in i'm out there in this driving rain it's really cold i'm trying to set this damn sump pump up and in my mind i'm thinking about the okinawa scene from the pacific (laughs) When, when it's just torrents of rain never ending they're cold, they're miserable. And I'm looking around thinking, you know, I'm so lucky that I'm not surrounded by mm-hmm. horrible this stench of death and everything else that those guys had. So, you know, it, I was cursing my situation, but at the same time, I felt lucky. Well, you, you, you and I have been talking about a book, and I, and I believe it's at the, the forward of this book, and I may be wrong. I've read so many books. Um, but on the book that you're currently reading, the one that says We Are Alive and Who Remain, it's the untold yes. stories. Is it in the forward in that one where the author talks about how when he has to go out and run and he doesn't want to run and he thinks about how horrible exercise is, he puts himself in a situation where he says, well, if the, if I was on the front line, I'd be more than happy. To, basically, he – and I do the same thing. I tell people – I've said this on the podcast before. Anytime I'm like complaining about how bad my day is or having to do something I don't want to do, I think about how if I had a time machine and went back to right. whether it's the Pacific or the ETO and started telling these guys my problems. First, they'd say, I don't know what the internet is. But second, they'd say, I would truly switch places with you and hand me the rifle, hop in my time machine, and they would be gone. So exactly. with that you – know, and I do that quite busy where i'm having something you know something stupid or minute just bothers me like could be a hell of a lot worse i could even in modern day you know we could be on a front line somewhere in a hostile situation trying to get home from afghanistan somewhere and so it i find it really does help center you and and kind of make you realize your your problems of the day aren't that bad and so i i have those thoughts too 
Well, it, all that being said, yeah, we, we got a, away with uh, minimal water damage. Uh, we had neighbors who got it pretty bad, and then there were some fatalities yeah. here in, in the Hoover area. Very tragic, obviously. But, you know, we, we went on our – we proceeded on our trip, The not the next day, but the day after that. So uh, we had a good little few days at the beach, down at Grayton Beach, and then got back and got, you know, got back into the groove. When you're outside dealing with the flooding, did any part of you think maybe I need to relocate some of my historical valuable things? I.e. Not, not really, because I I mean, the situation wasn't that bad. Yeah. And we're actually, we've actually got a guy lined up to do a water mitigation project for us here at our, on our property. Um, so the, a large part of the issue will be alleviated when he does that. Sure. But, um, I mean, I know what you're saying. I mean, I think about my dad's things and, you know, it's like when I post those things on World War II in the Pacific, man, it just blows up. And I just think, good God, man, I can't ever let anything happen to this stuff. Yeah. Well, and now I'm here in Florida. It's a little different. I think my house is eight feet above sea level. And so yeah. whenever we get these hurricane threats, one of the things we always have to look at is the potential for storm surge. And the mm-hmm. only time I've been worried about it in the 19 years I've lived down here, and the four, four or five hurricanes I lived through, uh, about three or four years ago when um, Irma came through. Now, yes. Irma did knock out my power. I was without power, and I'm on well, so no power means no well. Had no power, no well for 16 long days in the middle of a hot Florida day. Now, with that being said, at the time of working radio, so after day nine, one of our listeners who got their power back brought over his generator, but, you know, it was provided enough electricity to turn on my refrigerator, a TV, um, no AC. And um, basically we ran a, a, a portable air conditioner here, which brought my home into a cool 89 degrees. But I bring all that up to say this, that has been the only time because my dad lived off of, he lives closer to the water and he mm-hmm. lives in a zone, uh, a flood zone one. And at the time we were doing computer work for a fire department who was, 15 minutes down the road from him out on the island and they were moving all their equipment over to Fort Myers because they seriously thought there was a potential for a flood. And so since my house is a little higher up than my dad's, him and my stepmom stayed here, but I'm saying all that to get to this point. That is the only time that I actually looked at all my stuff. I wasn't worried about the reproduction stuff, but like my original historical items, I actually put those in a centralized location so that if flooding did get bad and we had to hit up on the roof, um, right. it was my guns and my historical, once again, not my reproductive stuff, but my legitimate historical items that could not be replaced or lost that I actually clothing books, all that. But it was that stuff that I had positioned right here in the room. I'm sitting at now that if things got bad, where water started coming through and we had to get to higher ground, that was the stuff I was going to grab because you know, my first aid box that my grandfather brought home because he worked over, you know, he did grave registration, ETO, and some of the paper photos I have. Mm-hmm. And just just the stuff that water would destroy. That was the only time I ever really thought, okay, this stuff is not replaceable. It's going with me. The rest of it, insurance can cover. Right. And that's the only, yep. that's the only time I ever got to that point. Well, so, hopefully we won't be there anytime again soon, you know. <clears throat> yep. Um, on a lighter note, thanks to Facebook, and I meant to bring this up three episodes ago, so it would have been early September. Um, nine years ago, 
is when I did my very first World War II reenactment. So I've actually got into this really? hobby and got, and if it wasn't, that begat this. So if I would have never gotten into World War II reenacting, I would have never gotten to this. And so mm-hmm. basically the long road for me to get here started nine years ago last month. That was my first reenactment. My first impression was Marine Corps. At the time, no one was doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically fell in with a guy named John Thomas who ran the 1st Infantry Division Living History down here. And he allowed me to go down to an event they actually had in my backyard, i.e. Naples, and allowed me to set up my Marine Corps stuff. And I just fell in with them, slowly hung out with him, slowly started producing, you know, putting together 1st Infantry Division so that I could do more Living History events because at the time, once again, there was no Marine Corps stuff going on. But any any opportunity I had when we go into museums and all that, I would bring out my Marine Corps stuff because one or two other people had it. And so when you go there, um, I'd have a lot of, you know, Vietnam Marine Corps vets, Korean War vets, and, you know, even modern day Marines who would be thrilled to see my little tiny display surrounded by all these army displays because I was the only one, at least down in this area, doing it. And that's how I got into all this. But yeah, it's been almost... It's been nine years. I can't believe it's gone that quick. Man, that, but that's cool to know that. Yeah. <clears throat> See, I made the logistical mistake. Um, I say, like, ooh, I for, uh, the first item I ever bought, and I don't think I ever told you this story. I, I brought it up in the podcast before. First mm-hmm. item I ever got was an M1 helmet. And um, just whatever. I was looking through eBay, World War II stuff. Saw one. You know, it was a rear seam swivel bail. Nothing fancy, but for me, you never had any World War II stuff. I just bought it. Price is right. And it showed up, and I was like, wow, this thing's heavy. This is cool. And I just sat on my desk. And I started noticing anytime a friend or family member came to my house, they would pick it up. And they said, wow, this thing's heavy. I couldn't imagine living under this thing. I couldn't imagine hiking around with this thing and yada, yada, yada. And that's when it, it snapped with me. If something like a helmet sitting on my dresser or my desk could spark interest in this topic that I've been reading on, that I've started to develop what I've called an unexplainable, unquenchable thirst for knowledge on World War II, if something like a helmet could spark the interest in someone who previously had no interest before walking into this room and picking up this helmet, if whether it's for 30 seconds, 15 minutes, or a half hour, if that one item can spark that sort of conversation with somebody, what could a full uniform do? What could a tent do? Canteen. And that's what we do. I often tell people who's never been to a living history event, and I'm not talking about the World War II reenactments with the gunfire, but but living history where you walk around. I tell people, you ever been to a trade show? You know, where you're going to learn about cars or the latest AC units or fishing poles, and you're walking around from table to table. You got a bunch of salesmen. They got a table, all their stuff spread out, and they're trying to sell you stuff. They have these pitches out. They, they know them by heart. They regurgitate them. Well, that's all living history event is, except for we're not selling you our items. We're selling you the history. We have these well-written, regurgitated items memorized in our head, and we're just, every person comes through, just like at a trade show. Hey, how you doing? Let me tell you about my product. But the product is history, and it's all it is. And if you're a good salesperson, you can be a good living historian. And it's always fun to see when someone comes in for the first time. They got their gear, but they've never done an event. They're so Mm -hmm. timid. They, They don't, you know, they haven't figured out that interaction with the public. And it's fun to see someone who continues to come back, come out of their shell, especially these younger cats who grew up with phones. They don't have the social inter- interaction that we grew up with. And it's fun yeah, to see them come out of definitely. their shells like that. You and I, I, I think it's, I, I'm glad to hear they're young. You know, 
we've talked enough. You know, I don't sure. do the reenactment thing. That's not my thing. I sure. think it's great. There are people who do it. It, it provides an organic, visceral connection to the history. Mm-hmm. I totally respect the passion that reenactors have for the history. It's just never really been my thing. You know, we've talked about that. Yep. Um, but I think it's cool that there's some young people that, that you're seeing young people wanting to get into it. Well, th- there is young people, and I don't want to break this topic, but the barrier to entry for living history is the cost. And so yeah, a yeah. lot of people don't get in it until they're in their 30s and 40s when technically they're too old to betray those people, but now they have careers and jobs that will afford them the ability to buy the uniforms yeah, unless they're a younger kid who have parents who are willing to spend that amount of money on their child. Um, and rightfully so, a lot of parents aren't into that because you have kids. You know, hey, my kid's into this one week, and next week he's into something completely different. <laughs> so I'm not going to drop yes. you know, that amount of money on a uniform that they're going to lose interest in exactly. in a month and a half. But um, while we're on the so- topic of rural, uh, living history, I wish Jeff was here because Jeff, he'll talk about next week. He's got an opportunity coming up. And one of the things we've talked about on this podcast quite a bit as far as Florida it's not the most historically accurate, but one of the more enjoyable um, living history events slash reenactments, especially for someone like me who likes to do improv, who likes to interact with the public. Um, coming up the first weekend of November, it's actually November 4th, 5th, and 6th, is the Von Kessinger Express. And the cool thing about this is it takes place at the Florida Railroad Museum. Okay. And they actually have a train, and they got, I don't know, maybe 8 to 10 miles worth of track. And uh, before I explain all that, I'll just give you their website's introduction, their sales pitch for people because they sell tickets to this thing. Um, World War II comes to life. It's June 1944, France, soon after D-Day. The Allies are quickly approaching German General von Kessinger's camp. If your papers are in order, you'll be permitted to escape with the general board his train racing across France countryside. As the French resistance, the United States and British forces give chase. While the general Will the general evade captivity? uh, capture be sure your papers are in order before finding out the germans will be checking for spies and what all that means is this is very cool we're all familiar with murder mystery tours right you get on the train and they act out murder mysteries Mm -hmm. this there's two events that produce basically the whole yearly income for this train museum this event and their santa claus ride (laughs) around christmas what this means is when the general public shows up at this museum um, it looks like they're, they're pulling in the German occupied France, German huh. flags everywhere. There's Weimar soldiers walking around SS and they buy tickets beforehand to ride the train. Cause the train does go down like 10 miles worth of track. But when they get on the, they're given German passports, the German reenactors, those who are up for it are interacting in, you know, role playing. If you will, this is 1944. We're not going to break character. They're mean to some people right. and they hand them out papers. There's not really scripting, but well-rehearsed improv going on of what the situation is. The train leaves the station, goes halfway down the track. They usually take someone off to interrogate them, whatever. The airborne comes out of the field because it's in the middle of nowhere. There's a small engagement. The Germans win for once. Hurrah. Usually take a (laughs) prisoner or two. Go down to the other end of the track. Allies come in. There's another big skirmish. This time the Germans lose. Spoiler alert. The Allies get on. And now, as the train's going back from point B back to point A, there is basically live play going on between Art and whoever the German generals are. And they're they're basically acting out this whole hurrah, you know, blah, 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 interacting with 
the train people one year I was on there and we actually had some living historians dressed up as civilians in um, 1944 French clothing. I found one that had, it was very cool. I got great pictures of it. He had, I didn't even know. I just opened a suitcase and he had printouts of the uh, V2 rockets. So he was basically a German scientist trying to hightail it out of there. Oh, wow. And so there's people in, you know, air correct civilian clothing. We're acting out. It's once again, like a murder mystery tour, but there's no, script if you're good at improving and interacting with people and so this goes on for the whole train ride back you get back now the germans come out obviously they want their train and their general back there's one more big you know reenactment so that public gets to see three battle skirmishes in one day they get to ride a train they get to interact with people and they feel like they're 1944 once again it's not historically accurate it's almost like a universal studio ride but it's fun it produces money for the um the museum, we do two of these on Saturday. So we're basically doing two shows on Saturday and then one on Sunday. So that's a great time. If you guys are down in Florida, you can head over to the FRRM.org. That is the uh, Florida Railroad Museum.org. Get, uh, when is this now? November th- uh, 3rd, Friday. Um, no, it's the 6th and the 7th. So Friday is the 6th and then Saturday is the 7th. It's 19 bucks for adults, um, 15 bucks for children. So basically, see, that's a great way. That's a great way to engage people. Mm-hmm. Price of a movie ticket and it's live action, um, and and you learn a little bit about history. And even yeah. if two kids go home or two adults go home, out of all the people on that train, if two of them go home <laughs> and stop when they're flipping through TV on a World War II based show and actually say, "Hey, I'm going to check this out," it's yeah. worth it. And you're and you're raising money for a museum. And, you know, we usually have some motorcycles out there. One year, Second Armor came out there with one of their smaller pieces and was lighting up their 50 round, you know, fifty cal with the with the blanks, which produces great muzzle blast. And it's it's fun. Oh, wow. it's, it's a good time. And yeah, so, stuff like that, it engages people. And like you say, if, if you get one person, mm-hmm. one person out of 10 or two, you know, who says, I've, I'm kind of interested in this stuff. It makes me think of that movie, Kelly's Heroes or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and it, it it makes them want to do maybe read a book or something. And or then, nowadays with the kids, it reminds me of Call of Duty. Uh, I'll take it. Exactly. It's, it's a foot in yep. the door. Yep. By you know, Call of Duty is a video game, but the World War II ones are based on these guys. This really existed. Let me come show you, you know, the right. uniforms and talk to you about these people. And now I really wish Jeff was here for this one because it's taking place in Texas. We don't get into political stuff on here. But this is right up our alley with World War II stuff. And it's happening in Texas. They have since apologized. But this falls under the category of bad results coming from good intentions. Um, I'm just going to lay the groundwork. We've all heard, depending on where you live, how certain people feel about some of the um, curriculum being taught in schools. And some people... and case of Texas has gone as far as saying, Hey, if you're going to present some information on a certain topic, you need to provide opposing views. That way kids aren't getting indoctrinated. Good policy, except for when it comes to this. And they have since apologized. You probably know where I'm going with this. I'm afraid to even know. Texas school officials tell teachers that Holocaust books should have countered, uh, countered with opposing views. Yeah, I, I don't, don't mean to laugh, to but pull a pin on that don't mean to laugh, but th- once again, they've since realized 
the downside to this because the only opposing views to the Holocaust would be, well, Mein Kampf. But anyhow, North Texas, North Texas School District apologized last Thursday after administrator advised teachers that if they have any books about the Holocaust in their classrooms, they should also include reading materials that have, quote unquote, opposing perspectives of the genocides that killed millions of Jews during the training session. And, and if you're listening at home, we're not laughing. We're laughing at the, uh, the idiocracy and the stupidity behind such a uh, announcement being made by a school board teacher during the training session on what books teachers can have in their classroom libraries. Gina Petty, executive director of curriculum and instruction for the Carroll independent school district referenced a new Texas law that requires educators to present multiple perspectives when discussing, quote, widely debated and currently controversial issues. Now, um, I don't know how current <laughs> and how controversial uh, the Holocaust was. It's definitely not current. It's 80 years ago, and I think we've pretty much proven it happened. But right. anyhow, uh, quote, just try to remember the concepts of House Bill 3979, Petty said on the October 8th meeting, um, according to records obtained by NBC News, which first reported the story. And make sure that if you have a book on the Holocaust, you have one that has opposing views of others' perspectives. As pointed out on World War II websites over the internet, what's so you want them to have Mein Kampf sitting next to it? I mean, what really books are out there that has... They're trying to pass the Holocaust as in a positive perspective. Quote, how do you oppose the Holocaust? One teacher said in response, sounding baffled. Believe me, Petty said, that's come up. Uh, Lane Ledbetter, superintendent for Carroll's ISD in South, uh, South Lake, Texas, apologized late Thursday, acknowledged that the authenticity of the recordings quote during the conversations with teachers comments uh made were no way uh to convey the holocaust was anything less than a terrible event in history ledbetter said in the statement posted on facebook additionally we recognize that there are no that there are not two sides to the holocaust but and as i prefaced this whole story i get the idea that there's a lot of curriculum being taught out there that you know people on the opposite side of the aisle don't like the you know they're feeling that their kids are being indoctrinated and that there should be opposing views. And yes, that should happen on, let's just say 92% of the, of the context out there. But when it comes to something like, uh, you know, the Holocaust or nine 11, things like that, there's really no positive opposing views of this. Kind subjects. of an inflammatory topic. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact that the teacher or, Unless she was basically, maybe, maybe the joke's on everybody else. Maybe this is her way of pointing out the lunacy of this law and using this as a way with a straight face and saying, hey, don't forget if you have to have a book on the Holocaust. So, but anyhow, that's out there. I figured it's World War II topic. We, we need to touch on it a little bit. But on the happier topics, uh, we've decided we've been uh, a little PTO heavy around here for a while. And so we are going to do a little ETO stuff. But more specifically, for those of you watching on YouTube, looking over my shoulder, you can see that good old Steve is no longer in his uh, P-41s. He's now in his uh, airborne uniform because, one, i got to get the wrinkles out because that's what I'm going to wear at the Von Kessinger Express. But um, we nice. figured we'd do a little ETO, and Henry, um, and rightfully so because of his um, appearances and relationships with the guys over at uh, We the Happy Few. Am I getting that right? We we happy few. We happy few. 
We well, happy for you, 506. 506 podcast. Well, kind of a YouTube video podcast, but we'll just, for lack of better, we'll refer to it as podcast. You've been doing a lot of topics and reading up on Band of Brothers and all that, so we we thought we'd get into that a little bit, and I'll let yeah, you kind of, I'll let you kind of crack open that egg, and I'll I'll join in as as we see fit. Yeah. So, uh, like you said, I mean, I my personal ties to PTO. But I have a personal tie to the European theater, too. As you may have heard me mention, my uncle, Mm -hmm. my dad's older brother, Edward Sledge, was in the 741st Tank Battalion. He was uh, a tank commander, went to the Citadel. So, you know, I mean, while I have, I mean, PTO history is in my DNA. It's part of my, it's just in my blood. Not very far behind it is my love for European stuff. So, you know, Band of Brothers just started watching it. Uh, Friday night uh, for the first time since probably 2010. Okay. But I'm four parts in. I got my son to actually sit through. He's 13, you know, so probably still a little behind that curve, but he sat through uh, the first two episodes. And that's saying something because at that age, you're all about the action. You probably have a pretty easy time sitting through some of the later episodes, but the first episode, first two episodes really is all about the training and character development and less about the exactly. action and the jumping into Normandy. So for him to stick through the first two episodes, that's, that's a good start. He's, you know, and, and I mean, I, I gotta say you, you referenced earlier call of duty. I mean, if we're going to talk video games, there's a world war two flight sim that I really like. I used to be actively involved with it and I'm planning on getting back to it's aisle two stern of it. Okay. Great World War II flight sim. First-person shooters aren't really my thing. I just never really got into them. But my son has played Call of Duty. Um, and, I, you know, I've sat there and watched him play that. And, I mean, the graphics are, are pretty stunning, honestly. But, um, I mean, it's a far cry from the, the stuff we had when we were growing up. Yeah. And, but, and, and the thing is, too, there's a difference between the Call of Duty multiplayer and the campaign mode, especially if you go back. Are you have have you ever seen it came out probably ten years ago? Uh, Call of Duty World at War. That yeah, was I the think, first PTO based one. That one's actually PTO based, and if you play the campaign mode. Even though historians like us will go crazy that they're wearing P44s in the wrong time, but you start out at Macon Island um, right. and work your way through. And and the cool thing about that is, despite what you know people might nitpick about the campaign mode, one Keith or Sutherland's doing the narration, and in between oh, really? in between levels when they're loading up. They're showing real footage, and they talk about the rain on Bougainville, and they talk about the tractor sinking, and so. Sadly, a lot of the kids don't get into the campaign mode. They're more about the multiplayer. But at least at World, um, World at War and some of the World War II basins, when you play the campaign mode, they actually do put some history in those yeah. splash screens while the, the new, next level's loading. And the can, campaign mode on World at War, it's actually really – it's it's pretty cool when you're when – you're d- when you're in the trenches and you're on Guadalcanal and they got bonsai charges coming after you and there's just wave upon wave of guy. It's, it's pretty for the time. Obviously the graphics won't stand up now. Cause once again, I think the game's like 10 years old, but it was, it's a, it was a good, t- it was a damn good game at the time. And I think, well, you know, again, I, I would have, there was a day and a time I would have said first person shooters. Absolutely. 
not my thing. And I mean, mm-hmm. I'm still not going to sit down and play one, but I mean, it's, it's gotten my son because I'll tell you this. So in my car, I keep a copy of my dad's book. Okay. And the reason I have it there is because, you know, that once a month, as you know, that I work with a voice coach on developing narrative voiceover type mm-hmm. talent. I, you, I read from my dad's book. Sure. Okay. Now not to go back on with the old because we're trying to stay. That's easy fine. But you know, after Jack started playing some of these some of these games, like World of War being one of them, you know he'll he'll get in the car to go with me somewhere, and he'll see the book. He goes, "Hey, Daddy, can I can I read the book a little bit?" And yeah, yeah, go ahead. You know, and he'll just pick a random spot and start reading it. You go for whatever you can get yep. at that age, and, and if it gets another kid into the subject, you know, then maybe first person. Sh- well, I'm not saying first person shooters are a bad thing at all. If it gets one, or if it gets a kid interested in the history of it, and I know it does, that's a great thing. And with that being said, uh, they do have a new World War II themed Call of Duty game coming out. Of course, they do have to change some things to make it more palatable for today's generations. But the cool thing is, on the campaign mode, they're actually going to do some North Africa stuff. And so, not really? it's not the you know most of these World War II games either a majority of them take place in Europe with the exception of World at War, but this one actually is they're going to do North Africa, they're going to have some Italy campaigns, and so for those young cats who do actually play the campaign mode with the storytelling, they will learn a little bit about North Africa and Italy and all that. So, you know that is beneficial as well. But anyhow, back to Band of Brothers. Yeah, absolutely. So I got through replacements part four and uh so bastone will be the next episode you know and it's interesting as i sat there and watched it and and just of course you know i'm we're probably the same here and jeff too practically memorized every line in mm-hmm. it. and as i sat there and watched it you know it, it several things went through my mind number one just what a well done production it was but number two it also made me it reaffirmed my my newfound belief that i've told you guys about the pacific stands up well Mm -hmm. i really believe it does i mean because i don't care what it is there's always going to be something you wish had been done a little bit different and when i first saw the pacific years ago there were so many things like oh man why did they use that you're too close to it but yeah but when I watch Band of Brothers, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's great. It's wonderful. Beautifully done. And yet there's still little things in there that I'm like, yeah, okay, well, I wish they'd done this, you know, or there's not much, you know, uh, and there's not much in the Pacific either. But my point is that I'm thoroughly enjoying reengaging with Band of Brothers, but it's also made me realize the Pacific stands up well. I also tell people my personal belief, the differences between the two, I think um, Band of Brothers is more character driven. Now, that may sound a little weird because they do have characters in the Pacific, but I think the Pacific does a better job focusing on the daily struggles living in that situation. They actually touch on, you know, the diarrhea, the, you know, dysentery, the the actual battle against, you know, the elements. When they weren't fighting, they're fighting the elements. And whereas uh, Band of Brothers, was, once again, I'm, there are two different things that, you know, but to me, the the bigger difference is uh, like if you're into character development and all that, Band of Brothers is probably going to spark your interest a little bit more. But to me, you know, I love them both. I actually have 
both of them were actually gifts to me when I worked in radio by uh, the host. He got me both of them. One for my, he yeah. got me Pacific box set for my birthday and Band of Brothers for Christmas. So I have both of them. But um, and that, and I'm looking at right now. I got seven books on the uh, Band of Brothers and probably nine on on the you know PTO. So well, so to to piggyback onto that, I'm reading the book we talked about, Marcus Brotherton's book. We had we who are alive and who remain, which is a great book because it talks about the people who were either not talked about at all in Band of Brothers or provides right. more detail. Um, like Earl McClung, he was briefly mm-hmm. discussed in Band of Brothers. Uh, once you watch it the eighth or ninth time, you'll realize his name was mentioned here and there more than you realize the first time through. But you really don't get the one, you don't know why they call him One Long McClung until you read that book. But exactly. This yeah. book actually talks about because there were more people in that division than just the the twenty or so covered in that in that miniseries and Stephen Ambrose's book. So it mm-hmm. it covers it gives it gives you a well rounded story. Just like I think you would agree after reading uh, with the old breeder helmet with my pillow. If you helmet enjoyed those books, it would behoove you to get a more full picture to then move on to strongman armed. And then maybe Guadalcanal Diaries or Battle for Guadalcanal or Guadalcanal book. But I think a good way to get yourself into that is to read the the ones everybody knows about, the Band of Brothers, and then read all the offshoots and then read, you know, in the PTO. Once you read Home, uh, Home for My Pillow with the Old Breed, then read Strongman Arm, and it, it helps tie it, it all together. Right. And it, it yeah, well, reading the, the book I'm reading now, like you just said, I mean, it, it, it's. I mean, I, I remember I've got name recognition on the characters well enough, and I'm thinking, okay, so they took liberties. You know, they they, they have to do character compression mm-hmm. and storyline compression. You have to do those things because you can't make it 80 parts. People like us would like that, but you can't do that and tell the story. And so they did that in Band of Brothers, too. You know, they were like you get the feeling that all those guys are, are like every one of them, every single one of them started at Tacoa. Well, then reading this book, you realize, well, there was a core, there was a cadre that did, but there were a bunch of them that were just all over. Mm-hmm. And they got fed in piecemeal at different times. Mm-hmm. Like Babe Heffron. He was a replacement. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about this before when it comes to those type of miniseries. Sometimes the story is more important than the person that it happened to. And so instead right. of shooting an entire episode or show or doing character development on a single person just to tell one story. Let's take Mm -hmm. that event or story and apply it to someone else. We've already spent time and energy developing the character for because it just makes more sense that way. Exactly. And we definitely saw it in the Pacific. And once you start reading these offshoots of the book, you'll realize they did the same thing in in band of brothers. And that's just the way it has to go. When you have a 12 episode, you know, do you want to leave the story out because you didn't develop the person that it happened to, or do you want to take that important story and message and just apply it to somebody else? And it serves the larger picture. You know, I think we'd be remiss to mention, and you've already seen the episode, um, Operation Market Garden. And I, I sent you a text said, you know, I'm reading, I'm, yeah. I'm rereading this book called September Hope about the debacle that was Operation Market hey, who Garden. Who wrote that? Who's the author on that? Uh, John C. McManus. McManus? Yeah, author of a book called Grunts. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually just, he and I just became Facebook friends. I mean, I'm I'm very familiar with some of his work. Cool. Maybe we can get him on the show. So um, I need to read that book. Yeah. and um, But 
and now from reading Band of Brothers and you know some of those others or watching history on Operation Market Garden, we all kind of know okay, it's the first time the Airborne had to retreat. Um, it was first time we handed the reins over to Montgomery. But reading this book, it really gets into the backstory of how the whole thing came to be. Mm-hmm. And first and foremost, Eisenhower and Montgomery were not fans of each other. Right. <laughs> Going back to their first meeting, the very first time Montgomery met Eisenhower, he took it upon himself to, um, let's just say, less than politely tell Eisenhower why it was in bad form to smoke in front of him while Eisenhower was giving a lecture to a bunch of other people. <laughs> so it wasn't a one-on-one meeting. Eisenhower was, wow. was basically going over some details with a bunch of other uh, leaders. And Montgomery came in and, how dare you smoke in front of me? And they had this whole thing. And so mm-hmm. they weren't fans of each other from then. Eisenhower kind of thought Montgomery was obtuse and full of himself. But, you know, Montgomery kind of had the opinion, and so did other people, that, you know, Eisenhower was an office general. He very rarely mm-hmm. came out, whereas Montgomery had served all these years. But anyhow, but what's interesting is Montgomery really wanted to get a single front push. He thought that if he could get his way, he could have a single front push all the way into the Germany. Bob's your uncle that's in the war by the end of 44. Whereas Eisenhower felt, you know, we have to attack on multiple fronts, spread out their logistics, spread out their availability. Let's weaken them that way. You know, because if we had a single front, all they got to do was bring all their equipment in and meet us to that single front. And so Montgomery had been hammering him about, hey, we, we need a single front. We need a single front. Eisenhower's like, nay. Turns out Eisenhower had, um, he had a bad left leg from a football accident when he played in college at West Point. Mm-hmm. And um, so his left leg was always kind of bummed. Then he had his good right knee, but he was out doing some reconnaissance or something along with his Jeep rider. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. He was like in a biplane, a small, small plane. They're doing reconnaissance. Something happened. The plane had to make a crash landing on the beach and he busted up his right knee. And so his right leg was actually in a cast when he came to meet Montgomery to finally talk to him about basically annoying the living hell out of him through letters and, and lines um, about this operation. He, he thought that they actually wasn't even an operation. He wanted just to basically take over the whole damn movement. Mm-hmm. So Montgomery came in, came to the plane because Eisenhower couldn't get off of it. He was all upset because apparently they had huge communication gaps um, with where Eisenhower was stationed. Um, some of the leaders hadn't actually heard from him in weeks uh, or they'd get piecemeal little bits of information because for some reason the wire everything was being done through wire not communication but actually like you know wire like old school stuff and so he came in all ready and started turning eisenhower and eisenhower just said hey subtle voice calm down can't talk to me that way i'm your boss and that kind of diffused the situation and so Hmm. montgomery he realized hey i've been trying to get a single front operation for all these months and, and the old man's not allowing it to happen. But he had something in his pocket that him and his planners had just developed. We're all familiar with the V one rocket, right? Buzz right. bombs. Buzz bomb. Germans were launching the buzz bombs. I'm gonna take a drink, you explain to the audience about buzz bombs because my I'm losing my throat. Well the buzz bomb was the V one had a pulse jet engine that they were launched from angled ramps. Um 
I don't know that much about them, but I know enough to say that their telltale signs were they basically ran until they ran out of fuel. The engine right. shut off. You know, they're coming in. They flew slow. And so by this time, the war, the, uh, the Brits had gotten pretty good at shooting these damn things down. I think they were good for like maybe six out of 10. They were shooting down because once again, once you heard the engine stop, you knew it was going to crash. They're relatively slow. So it, yeah. they became more of a nuisance because then they were a deadly weapon at that point. But they had gotten some information that the V2 rocket was a new problem. And they start, and the V2s were starting to get launched. V2s, the engines didn't cut out. They were more right. methodical. They flew until they hit their predetermined target. So they didn't know when they were going to crash because the engines didn't cut out. Um, they were able to fly further and have bigger ordnance. And they found out that most of V2 stations were in Holland. That's where they're launching them from. And so Montgomery had gotten with his guys and said, hey, instead of just trying to do a single front into Germany and getting Eisenhower to buy off on this thing, we need to get Churchill happy because he wants us to do something about these V2 rockets. Um, I want my single front war front, but more importantly, let's come up with a plan. And so they had to plan Technically, market and garden were two different things. Market was the dropping of the airborne. Garden was mm -hmm. when they bring in the, the armor. And so he went to Montgomery, he went to Eisenhower with this and said, well, let's hold off on the whole turning the war into a single front. Clearly, you're not down for that cause. However, I have this operation I want you to look at because of these V2 rockets. Churchill's getting concerned. So he dropped the big guy's name, perk up Eisenhower's attention. The other thing he had going for him is it involved the air, the airborne. Now, the mm -hmm. airborne, on a wide scale, hadn't been utilized since Normandy. As you know from Reed and Band of Brothers, they had 16 missions. Actually, I think they said 12, but according to this book, 16 missions that were planned and then scrubbed because the land forces were just moving too quick. The ejectors were being overtaken. Yeah. And so these guys, with the exception of the 82nd Airborne, who had been doing some fighting in Italy and already had four combat missions underneath them, the 101st, and um, basically they jumped into Normandy and they've just basically been training, training, training since then. Mm -hmm. And Eisenhower is like, we got some of the most expensive men when it comes to training. Not only was it expensive to train them, but they're the cream of the crop. They're the best of the best. You know, you this all volunteer and you had to pass rigorous training. We have all these men and equipment, best of the best, not being utilized. And Montgomery right. brings me this operation that allows me to utilize them. He gets a little bit of what he wants. Churchill, if this is successful, gets what he wants. And so after some debate, he says, the hell with it. You have your operation. You got seven days to plan it. Well, <laughs> they had their not, initial meeting on September 10th. Their jump off date was September 17th because the whole planning behind Operation Mark and Garden was they believed that Germany was in disarray. The German troops were in disarray. They, they lost some major combat. They were retreating. They're all over the place. We need to right. catch them while they're off guard before they have time to stop, dig in, refit, and put up a front. So they had seven days. But at this point, Eisenhower hadn't agreed to reallocate everything because we all know now that the biggest problem with Mark, Operation Market Garden is they recounted, Kyle Reed, 
calibrated. Cal- sent everything to this one thing, so everything else stopped. Patent stopped. All the movement everywhere else stopped. All the equipment. Mm-hmm. But this book really goes well into talking about, you know, we just think, oh, okay, well, we just got to drop a couple airborne. Well, you got airborne men stationed all over. You got to get them to the airports. So we need right. troop transport trucks. We don't have enough of those. So now we got to go get troop transport trucks that were assigned to 1st Infantry, 20, you know, all of these different places, reallocate them. We're going to need planes because after all, was the airborne known from? Right. Cohesiveness. The airborne is the first, at least at that time, army unit that they they relied heavily on cohesion. They didn't just take mm-hmm. guy from here, guy from there, and just form a squad and kick them out. These are guys who's trained and fought together, and these guys mm-hmm. have to be on the same plane, same landing, all that. So they had to figure out that. Okay, well, got you know five hundred six over here. Got the eighty second airborne over there. We got company A through. You know, A through I on here, they got to, and so this thing goes in, and I'm, I've read it once about three years ago. I'm only on page 55 since I started rereading it, and there's basically the last 15 minutes I've regurgitated to you is in the first 55 pages of this book. What year was that written, Don? It's always on the what, third page. First publishing was 2012. This The version I have is from 2013. Okay. And so uh, what you just said brings up a really good point because that's one thing I had kind of forgotten about, you know, re-engaging with Band of Brothers and reading the book I'm reading now. Those guys had to be adaptable Mm -hmm. because sure. You're easy company. Second battalion 506. They were second battalion, right? Uh, You remember? Yes. Yep. Um, Tight, cohesive unit, knew each other, trained together. That's all great and wonderful. But when you drop, what are the chances your entire company is going to get hooked back up? Mm-hmm. You're Like you said, you're going to be fighting with guys from 82nd. You're going to be fighting with somebody from another regiment. I mean, the ad hoc nature of it, I'm sure, was just mind-boggling. And the original version of the planning for Operation Mark and Garden, 506 was going to be responsible for a 30-mile front. Because the intention was 506 drop in, they're going to take care of 30 miles, 82nd Airborne is going to drop in, then we know about the Red Devils. One thing a lot of people don't realize, you know who else was involved in the Operation Marking Garden? The Poles. Mm. The Polish Airborne troops were a part of that. And they actually really? dropped in further. They were, um, I think the Poles were 70 miles into German-occupied territory. And then the Brits were, I think, 60 miles. And so right up to, like, day four, they had to go to Montgomery and say, look, 506, we can't cover 30 miles. It's, mm-hmm. They're going to come in and annihilate us because you're going to take our battalion and basically cut us up into little chunks to try to cover 30-mile area. So I think they refinagled and i think they agreed on 15 miles which is still a lot of land but yeah they they were given the task to cover 30 miles and and obviously they had in which i would love i don't think it ever happened i don't think the 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 glider riders the glider pilots man they don't get a lot of you know there's not a whole lot of mainstream coverage about what they did and and cool thing is on on the cover of this book you can't really see it but that's yeah. actually a disintegrated glider behind them. It's a bunch okay. of airborne guys, and people don't realize gliders are basically cardboard and paper on a exactly. on, on a metal frame. Yeah. 
they got a that's a good point because uh i don't think the glider boys got any kind of Mm -mm. uh name cred and band of brothers i'm not saying they should have but i know they did but like you know saving private ryan they got a little shout out and the only reference you heard to them was all um no no they really made no reference to the gliders even though a lot of them had to carry the jeeps and in a lot of the vehicles and i think it's it was a band of brothers yeah and it wasn't until later on in the war that they actually got hazard pay as well at first they didn't get hazard pay but then enough wow. of them start getting injured in the landings because the landings of those gliders were rough and yeah. um and yeah one later till they got a little hazard but yeah i'm reading i'm into this book and um it's definitely a good one to get definitely a good one to add to your collection but when you Kind of like when I'm reading um, Battle for Guadalcanal. I haven't gotten to the other Guadalcanal book. I'm I'm, I'm interested to read that one because everybody says that one's the definitive one. I'm going to be interested to see the transition because I'll tell you what, Henry, there's a lot to be learned about Guadalcanal from the Battle Gua- Battle for Guadalcanal book that I'm reading, which is uh-huh. was put out in like 1954. Mm-hmm. And the one I made reference to uh, two weeks ago. There's a lot of information in there. And once again, much like Operation Market Card, Guadalcanal was put together last minute. Kind of, you know, it's a hurry. You know, we have to take advantage of a certain situation that our enemies in. And we kind of have to go to it. And reading September Hope, you really get the idea that General Horton and some of the other Allied commanders, they kind of looked at, Operation Martin Garden is how is this going to ever work? A lot of them had the foresight that this is not going to work, um, but they knew Montgomery was so invested in this concept because it got to the point where basically Montgomery had fought so much for this concept of a single front push to Germany that he looked at Operation Martin Garden as this will be my way to prove to the old man that this concept will work. He's like, okay, I'm going to give up on the whole push for the whole war. Let's get Operation Market Garden to work, which we all know what happened there. Right. Um, so he was putting all his his coins in that basket. And like two days before the kickoff, they found out that there was divisions of panzers that no one had planned for, but no one wanted to listen. It was, mm-hmm. we're all in it now. Alloc- resource allocation's been done. Um, we're all in it. So we're just going to have to take the licks. It is what it is. And, and as anyone who's read Band of Brothers or, or Dick Winter's um, uh, thoughts and opinions on Operation Market Garden, it was the leadership and the fact that every day at noon, hey, stop the war for tea time, get out mm-hmm. the boilers, let's just chill out and relax, not take advantage of uh, you know momentum. We have I've always heard Montgomery was not an easy guy to work with. Mm-mm. I think there was one, you know, and I I know very little about Market Garden. I mean, honestly, obviously the part in Band of Brothers, but the Ardennes, Battle of the Bulge, one of my favorites. My uncle was there, okay? Wow. 741st Tank Battalion, 2nd Armored. But, um... Hold on, not to get mired down the mud, but... uh Uh-huh. No pun intended. But you're talking about Battle of the Bulge, Ardennes Forest. We know it's damn cold. Could you imagine how cold? I mean, you had the diesel tanks, but I, the diesel engine, but they weren't running all the time, not most of the time. Just being around that big hunk of just, I don't know, sure it blocks the wind, but part of me just, 
as uncomfortable as tanks are in in certain weather, just the cold had to be that much more uncomfortable. Well, I don't know from a Sherman crewman's perspective, but there was uh, there was some book written by, it might have been Otto Carius's book, Panzer Ace mm-hmm. or something like that. It was, it was a series of books had a green, they all had green covers. Okay. I cannot remember who put them out, but anyway, this guy, German tanker, I think it was a Tiger, a Tiger crewman, Tiger commander, I think it was Otto Carius. And I do believe it was in that book. He talked a lot about going to sleep in a tiger tank at night. Like the metal, it drew the cold. Mm-hmm. And they would wake up in the mornings and the condensation, you know, on the walls of the turret and just all around them. Were, I mean, it was just frozen. Yeah. Because it just, you know, for anybody who's done living history and has slept in a tent like, for example, there's an event up in Georgia that happens every year in February. I went last year and the year before. Last year, I got smart. Last year, I stopped at Tractor Supply and got a bale of square hay to lay on the ground in my tent. Because, like you're saying, the ground draws it out. But you know what's worse than laying on the ground in, in cold conditions? Laying in a cot that? in cold conditions. Really? Yeah. Because yeah. there's no nothing underneath you. Your body heat goes through the exactly. bottom. Yeah. I've had people tell me the secret is you take a wool blanket, you unfold it so that the wool blanket touches the ground. It keeps that warm air underneath you. But I have found from doing this for the last nine years, in the wintertime, I sleep mm-hmm. on the ground. And last year mm-hmm. when I went to bed, and I'm in Florida. For people living in Ohio, New York, this isn't cold, but when you've been in Florida for 19 years and your blood's thick, when you're laying on the ground in a tent and you wake up in the morning and it's 28 degrees and all the water on your truck is frozen over, mm-hmm. just having the, the little bit of air correct installation that was provided by having that hay, I basically laid the hay on the ground, laid my canvas flooring over it, two um, wool blankets, went to bed with my long johns, my uniform my jacket my gloves two more wool blankets on top me i was cold but i wasn't as bone chillingly cold as i had been in 38 degree nights without the hay just that little bit of insulation and so i can only imagine what sleeping on a cold hunk of metal when your diesel engine's not running even with your wool jacket on just you roll over and your earlobe touches that how painfully cold and how much that would suck suck to suck your 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 warmth out of you so when you say your uncle was in battle of the bulge in a tank i'm just like oh it doesn't sound fun and not to mention hatches freeze up uh yeah everything i i I didn't know him that well he was my dad's older brother sure um i don't have my phone down here it's upstairs but and and hey well this will be a tidbit for next episode but i've got my cousin sent me a picture of so my uncle Edward got three purple hearts, a bronze star, and a silver star. And that's purple um, hearts in a tank battle, not small arm fire. That's I, I will read. I don't have the, the citations on his mm-hmm. um, on his purple hearts, but I do on his bronze star and silver star. Wow! And it's pretty chilling to read them. And I'll next episode I'll read them. That'd be awesome. But th- the guy had a pretty amazing. You know, pretty amazing. And so it's like I have this connection to PTO, but I have this great connection to ETO as well. 
But a great regret of my life is I didn't know, I did not know my uncle Edward better than I did because I mean, you know, I, I probably haven't built as many models as Jeff has, but I've, I, at one time I really was into model building and just like you guys, man, I love all aspects of World War II history and I love M4 Sherman tanks. I just love them. And knowing that my uncle was, was in them, you know, I wish I could have, there's so many things I would love to have asked him. Yeah. You know, if he was still here, but I feel the same way about my grandfather because obviously him working grave registration, he never talked about any of it, good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah, I mean, and, you saw the absolute. And the fact that I grew up two hours away from him. Um, my parents got divorced. My dad moved me, my brother, my sister up to Ohio. The rest of my family's in northern Kentucky. And so I'm sure there's stories my cousins have heard as mm-hmm. they got older and age appropriate. Maybe he he discussed, but I was never around. And so he passed away and. I think Oh three. And so, um, so I never really got to discuss any of them. Closest thing yeah. I have is the army dog tags. I wear when I do my living history are exact replicas of his, my uncle sent me a mm-hmm. photo. And so my army dog tags are his service number, his name. Interesting thing I found looking at that is the name of the next kid on his dog tags was my grandmother's father. Uh-huh. Now, you would think that going off to war, you would have your own parents as the next can. You would think, yeah. But the only thing I can think of is my grandfather came from Eastern Kentucky, poor, poor coal mining area. I mean, um, I remember growing up or after he passed away, I was at my grandma's house. He still had, she still had some of his old company chit, they called it the company coins that right. these mm-hmm. people don't, a lot of people, younger cats may not know um, how these coal mines were operated. There were, People talk about how horrible Amazon is and how their employees aren't even allowed to take a urine break every so many hours. And a lot of them are peeing in bottles because they don't want to get their name tags actually have geographical locations. And so they know where they're at inside the building all the time, all this horrible stuff. When you worked in the coal mines in the 1800s and early 1900s, um, just imagine if Amazon not only did all that horrible crap, but then they owned all of the housing around the Amazon plant and in your town Mm -hmm. and all the grocery stores run by Amazon. And so instead of paying you in currency, they paid you in Amazon gift cards that can only only be used at Amazon. And so these coal miners and their families, they would work all these hours, get paid in company coin and had to use them to pay the rent on the company owned houses. And that currency was only good at the company owned grocery stores that had huge markup. And so you're basically living in your own little world and your only other option was either work there or break loose. And that's how my grandfather met my grandmother. He left the coal mining. He went to Richwood, Kentucky, great depression. My grandmother's side of the family basically lost most of their liquid assets and were relying on property they owned, which my grandparents actually used to sustain my mom's side of the family all the way up until they passed away. They would just sell off blocks of real estate here and there. But with that being said, my grandfather moved to Richwood and worked, started working at my grandmother's father's dairy farm mm-hmm. and saw my grandma. They got married. My grandfather went off the war and it's cool. And my, I have a copy of their wedding photo. Actually, I, it's going to be on the what's the scuttlebutt website because we're working on about us page where we have bios on all the hosts and it's it's there but you guys can't see it still in draft format but 
at the top you'll see my my uh grandparents wedding photo and my grandfather's actually in his his uh khaki dress uniform shirt so nice but uh yeah so that's how i met and i and the only thing i can think of is either a he had a falling out with his family or b they were so poor in the nation kentucky that it was just easier to get a letter phone call or a wire to his now more prosperous and well-to-do father-in-law than his poor family back in eastern kentucky the only thing i can think of because no one's around to answer that question anymore my grandmother passed away too yeah but anyhow um yeah airborne's um another fun fact in here they don't talk about it a lot in band of brothers 82nd airborne apparently uh some people believe the person responsible for the um the spread of STDs throughout England. <laughs> they came back from the war and they just went to town. And uh, it wasn't syphilis. It was scabies of all things. Uh, 82nd Airborne spread scabies all throughout Man, there's a, England. Man, there's an accomplishment you want on your resume. Yep. And I guess some of the uh, 101st had the same issue. But, yeah, it, they... They picked up a bad batch of scabies, and then when they came to town, they just spread it around. Let her rip. So there's some fun facts like that in here. Um, And that's all within the first 55 pages. So there's there's a lot of good information in that book. I would love to have him on. So if you're developing a relationship with him, uh, just say, hey, uh, we'd love to have you on. Well, my friend requested him, and he accepted it. But, I mean, hey, you know, I don't know, like, and you're not a big aviation guy. Jeff is... Uh, but Barrett Tillman, who Barrett Tillman's writ, written probably every book I've ever read on naval aviation in World War II. Uh, Bruce Gamble, written several great books. The best one I've ever read on VMF 214, The Black Sheep Squadron. And, you know, I, I friend request these people and they accept it. But I don't, you know, I don't know that they go, oh, Henry Sledge. Oh, yeah, Sledge, Eugene Sledge. You know, I don't know that that's and a lot got of, anything. And a lot of time if they're... If they're not truly personal pages, it could just be their assistant on there. Because a lot of these cats, you know, especially the ones, you know, our age or older, they're not into, you know, it's something they're, and I learned this from working radio and granted it's been three years, but back then they would actually spend money on Facebook consultants to tell you how to best use the algorithm because Facebook would change it so many times. Uh, And at the time, Facebook's kind of dying out now. Um, at the time, Facebook was it when it came to marketing. Um, I, don't know really? if you, I don't know if you noticed now, um, ever since the election and people starting to lose faith in the honesty of Facebook, Facebook is kind of turning away from the one, the independent interface. All their advertising, whether it's on YouTube, if you listen to any music on Pandora, if you hear a Facebook ad, it'll all be focused around Facebook groups. That's where they're putting all their focus now. It's all about, oh, you're in a macrame? Come join a Facebook group on macrame. You're in a World War II? Come join a World and, and that is great. That's what a lot of people use it for. But they sure. realize the standalone model that used to be Facebook of just posting on your timeline and see what all your friends are doing, um, yeah. that's kind of going away, and they're kind of re- reconstructing it to be more group-based, which is pretty much what yeah. I use it for is the World War II That's what I use it and, for. I mean, like we were talking earlier, man. I mean, World War II in the Pacific, uh, World War II fighters and their pilots. I mean, and it's it's like, okay, now I enjoy looking at Facebook instead of seeing, you know, some guy that I knew 20 years ago putting some <laughs> political rant on there. And now I'm like, oh, great. Now I'm even 
in a worse mood than I was when I picked my damn phone up, you know. I would love so, to see some stats on what kind of damage Facebook has done to the attendance of high school reunions. Because before Facebook, and even MySpace for that matter, the only time you mm-hmm. see all these people were to go to your high school reunion. But now that you see them online, you may have not have talked to them in 20 years, but right. you feel like you have. Like That's, a, uh, that's actually a really interesting question because it, it's like it takes – I, I don't want to get into talking about Facebook. We're a World War II thing, man. Well, we can, we got to stay true. Nah, we can. You can veer off a little bit because it's it's honesty. Just like um, two weeks ago, um, guy I went to high school with. He lives forty five minutes away from me. Even though we both went to high school in Ohio, he was in the Marine Corps. Um, he did twenty years, retired. Just so happened to move twenty minutes away from me. He and I went out kayak fishing two weeks ago. It is the first time I have occupied the same space on this God's Green Plains since June 6th, 1997, the Uh night we graduated high school. First time I have been in the same room with him. But because we were friends on Facebook and I'd seen his photos and I had seen him aged Mm -hmm. when he walked down the boat ramp and we shook each other's hands for the first time since 1997, it wasn't that mind-blowing of a deal because, once again, we had been communicating through Facebook Messenger and seeing each other's family's pictures and all that on Facebook. And so it would not surprise me in the least to find out 10 years from now that they're doing studies, find out that no one shows up at their high school graduations anymore because, well, they see people. It makes sense. Yeah. It kind of takes all the, the guesswork out of everything. Yep. <clears throat> Thank you, guys. Uh, we're not done yet, but I just want to get this in. Um, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, I always have to pause because my other podcast is called the What's in Your Head. I got too many podcasts with the word what in it. But uh, anyhow, this one came first. The This episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast has been brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all Southwest Florida since 2004. And even if you're not in Southwest Florida and you need some help with your computer as long as your internet works, of course, Give them a call at 239-283-1120, and they can assist you via their website with remote login. And once again, that number is 239-283-1120, or go over to act-capecoral.com. If you do live in the Southwest Florida area, they can help you with computer repair, laptop repair, network migrations, domain controller management, all the good stuff, anything technical-based, they can help you. And while you're on the internet, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on Patreon, sign up. Um, The base plan is only a dollar a month. I do need to get Henry and Jeff and maybe team up with my brother and do and what we call, uh, you haven't done one yet. We actually have a Patreon-based podcast that we do every once in a while. It's called the OG5 Podcast. The only people here are Patreon members. It's just kind of like, here's a little exclusive content. It may talk about something completely different than the podcast you may hear us on. Um, you know, we may spend 20 minutes talking about cars, um, whatever, but it's just a little exclusive. It's a little thank you for signing up, supporting the show. Even if you're only paying to the dollar a month plan, you still have access to all the same content. Um, whenever we do come up with new merchandise or I print up a new batch of stickers, I'll hit up people on Patreon say, Hey, you want some stickers? Give me your address. I'll send them to you for free. If you do sign up for a $7.50 a month plan, you do get a free t-shirt after month two. So that's a benefit. But in the last few months, we have picked up uh, a handful of new patrons. So thank you, guys. You can find those links over at WTSPWorldWar2.com. If you're on a smartphone, you have to scroll to the bottom just because of the way the page is laid out. Well, actually, I think on WTSPWorldWar2.com, if you click the three buttons on the left, a mystery toolbar will pop out. 
and you'll see the Patreon link there. I'm doing it on my phone as we speak because the website's... Hey, while you're looking for that, let me put in a plug for our What's the Scuttlebutt podcast t-shirts. Okay. Uh, My son loves one you sent. You you sent him the same one I got Mm -hmm. because he asked for it. Wore it to school. He really likes it. It's a good-looking t-shirt. And... You know, not to belittle, go over the radio stuff. One of the things I learned working in radio, whenever we hand out radio T-shirts, the T-shirts are a low quality. They shrink. And so when I did the w, the WTSP T-shirts and all the D-Digital 410 T-shirts, I recommend the premium stuff. We do have the lower end T-shirts, which are basically the same quality. You'll get it at a radio station giveaway. They're pretty much all cotton. They will shrink. So when you do buy our shirts, they're a little bit more. But choose the premium ones, as Henry can attest to. They are quality-grade T-shirts. They fit nice. They will not shrink. Uh, these, you know, When you order the premiums, these aren't the cheap ones that you get at giveaways where the bottoms curl up and they and they just look like our, these are nice T-shirts. I actually, no, I'm wearing a Lucky Strike shirt. I do have, but they're great shirts. And as if you guys are on YouTube, go while you're on our website, I bring up YouTube for a reason because of the t-shirt thing, but it's all going to tie together. While you're on WTSP, RollWar2.com, click on our YouTube channel. Please like, subscribe. We need like four more people to get to 500. But I say all that to say this. Chances are, if you're into this podcast or YouTube, you've watched Demolition Ranch videos. Matt goes and shoots up all this cool stuff in Texas. The shirts you get from our website are basically the same quality shirts if you guys buy anything from Bunker Branding. And that's what I was getting to. So they are good quality shirts. Um... We had had an issue with one of them in the past, but the vendor made it right. I will say this. They are slow going to get them, and here's why. These shirts are made to order. This protects me. Um, I make no money off of them, which is a different thing. But with that being said, is I don't have anything invested. It's not like I had to invest a couple hundred dollars and have boxes of T-shirts sitting around my garage saying, what am I going to do with all these shirts? When you order them, they're ordered... They're actually not printed until you order them. So with that being said, they do take a week or two to get because what they try to do is they'll wait until a hand, they'll wait so many days and then take all the t-shirts ordered within that time and then print them off at the same time and then mail them out. So they aren't the quickest shirts in the world to get, but that's because they're not printed until you order them and they come directly from the vendor who is Teespring, which interestingly enough, they will ship out of my hometown of Union, Kentucky. But uh, you got anything else you wanted to plug there, Henry? Our next We Happy Few 506 episode, my buddy Layton uh, messaged me yesterday. I think that next episode will be November 27th. Uh, We'll be... So the last episode, which I was not part of because we were at the beach, was on the Barcelona story. The upcoming one will be on Peleliu. Mm-hmm. So uh, I won't go into who it looks like will be the guests on there in addition to me, but it uh, sounds like it will be a really good show. Uh, the other thing, oh, I'll be on Mitchell Bell's Tall Tales of Taco tomorrow. Nice. Uh, now, aren't you and Jeff, are you going to have you and Jeff on there too at some point? Or? At some point. We're, it was tentatively for October, which here we are. Um, Jeff's handling that. Um, I know how these things are. Um, you know, I schedule people for three different podcasts. I'm not sure when we're going to be on there, but we're on, we'll be on when we do get a date. Um, we'll be, we'll let everybody know, but you're on there. That's coming up. You said this weekend. 
That's tomorrow. Tomorrow, great. Now, is that yeah. already in the can, or are you recording it tomorrow? No, we're recording it tomorrow. It'll be, I guess it's going to be live. Okay, or, cool. But it, we're recording it tomorrow. Fantastic. And so uh, there's there's that. Um, World War Two TV. Yes, World War. Thank you. See, that's why I asked World you before the show, so I can write it yes, down. Yes, <laughs> you are. You're experienced with all this. That's great. Because we forget. Go ahead. Paul Woodage, World War II TV. I've really enjoyed watching our good friend Brian Dimitrovich hooked mm-hmm. me up with him. Uh, and Brian was on what two weeks ago? Um. Well, yeah. Last episode for those who were going via episode, it would have been two weeks ago for us, but we didn't record an episode last week. So it was actually, if you're listening to this podcast, it would be last episode. Okay. So uh, Brian hooked me up with Paul Woodage, World War II TV. Um, Paul and I have exchanged emails. He invited me to come on the show. That will be November 5th, I believe, as it stands right now. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, he sounds like he's a big fan of my dad's book. I've heard him talk about, I, I watched the episode he had with Saul David, who is the author of Crucible of Hell. And, uh, he they talked a lot about my dad i wasn't expecting that that was totally cool but um i'll I'll put in a plug for saul david so uh, i've got his book crucible of hell in okinawa on the way and he has very kindly asked me to read his manuscript on an upcoming book for him called devil dogs which is about k35 beautiful k company third battalion fifth marines so i gotta get so much better at remember authors names you and jeff do that to me all the time You'll mention an author, and I'm like, oh, and I'm like, I got to cast my eyes at my library and see the book. Oh, I just, I focus on the names of the books yeah, um, and not so much on the authors. I got to get so much better so that when I'm in situations in real time where you and Jeff mention an author's name, it's not until you mention the title of a book or two they wrote that I realize who they are. It's just, yeah. I, with the exception of obviously your father or Robert Leckie or Stephen Ambrose, I just, yeah. I get the book, I pick up a book, I read it, it's good. Um, that book, The the Forgotten 500, you, you should really check that one out at some point. It's it's a damn cool story. Um, basically, long story short, um, 500 or so down pilots throughout a certain um, theater of operation, they get uh, rounded up, and then they got to land an airplane, on the side of a mountain to get them. But um, mm-hmm. there's a civil war going on in that area. It's just a great book. We had the author on two or three years ago. Um, okay. I need to do something on WTSP. We have those who were there so people can easily find the interviews we did with people who were alive during the time. I'm going to make a, a sec, another menu option. It'll take me a while. I want to put all the authors I've interviewed so that when we say, oh, they've been on the show, you don't have to go through the archives. You can just go to the author's and all their author interviews idea. will be on there. That way people can find them quicker um, and separate it that way as well. Anything else? We kind of went in the weeds a little bit. Anything else you want to discuss on Band of Brothers before we go? No, man. I think we I think we did a pretty good job of touching on some different stuff. And, I mean, look, like you know, like you said, this is a World War II podcast. I mean, we'll, we'll get into at some point. I'm sure we need to re- – I really want to get deeper into the Battle of the Bulge um, more talk about armor airplanes eastern front i love eastern front stuff i got a book i gotta dig into someone gave me a book on uh german submarines we don't ever talk about submarine battles on here um 
I, have you? I'm, I got this book. I don't know where I got it from. Have you read Panic in the Pacific? Who wrote it? <laughs> there you go again. Uh, Bill. <laughs> Bill. I'm looking at the book from across the room. I I was going after I was sending all those photos of my books yesterday. I started putting them in order. So all that the uh, all my PTO stuffs on one shelf. All the paratrooper stuffs. And I came across this book. Someone gave me at some point called Panic in the Pacific by Bill. Yen, uh, Y-E-N-N-E, Yavin, I think. Um, I have got it on my shelf. I haven't read it yet, so I'm going to get to that one here okay. soon. But not now, familiar with it. Um, I got I, I got a few books that I didn't buy myself. Um, that um, I need to get to. Another good book is actually about crap. What's the uh, Army Infantry Division that was made up uh, entirely of Japanese Americans? 25th, 28th? Heard of it, but I oh, could not answer the I'd, number. Uh, World War II infantry made up of Japanese Americans. I think it was the 28th. Uh, the 40, I'm sorry, the 40, the 442nd. Um, which, interestingly enough, if you go back and watch Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi was a member of the 442nd. I bring that up because there's a book I read. Actually, now I know why I have the Panic at the Pacific because he wrote Rising Suns. And I read Rising Suns and then I went and ordered Panic at the Pacific. That's why I have it. Same author. Rising Sun is interesting because it's about the 442nd. But what's interesting about it, he goes into something that you probably weren't aware of. And that is the the uh, makeup of Hawaii at the time of Pearl Harbor as far as um, population makeup. Uh There was more Japanese expats in first generation, even though Hawaii was not a state yet, it was an American colony. But there was more Japanese expats living in Hawaii than there were Anglo-Saxon Americans at the time. Really, which is why, and there was a huge popular California, and I think Washington State were only second and third to Hawaii and uh, demographic of Japanese Americans, and that is why the West Coast did what they did with the internment camps. And in Rising Suns, he goes over the history of first generation and ex pat japanese and how they came to hawaii and how they made up a huge demographic people don't realize that Mm -hmm. during pearl harbor there was more next to the natives hawaiians the next big population of of a race were japanese or ex ex ex-japanese patriots or you know people living in both areas but that's part of the why they freaked out the way they did when it came to american citizens of japanese descent because they didn't know who to trust because there was more of them in hawaii than there were um americans or Mm -hmm. you know anglo-saxon americans and that's something you never hear about in reading that book rising sun about the 442nd regimental combat team um, which is why when i read the name off pang of the pacific i say that sounds familiar then i look over in rising suns that's why i bought that book I'll read a book. I'll like the author and I'll go out and order another book and then forget about it. And then ask you on a podcast. Have you ever heard of this book? But anyhow, <laughs> this is our life. Um, you know, it's, it's, I, I still think it's insane. The other thing world war two has done to my life as somebody who grew up with a learning disability and, uh, graduated high school with a D in college prep history, but didn't have to take reading or math proficiency tests because, well, I have a learning disability. 
I never read. I would never read. I didn't read, with the exception of my Microsoft certification books, which I struggled through in 2001. I didn't mm-hmm. leisure read until I got into World War II. My very first book I ever purchased that wasn't given to me was a book I showed you a picture of the other day, uh, Brothers in Battle, The Best of Friends, Babe Heffern yes. and Wild Bill Garnier. First book I ever read for leisure reading that wasn't assigned to me through a school. Um, never could read out loud. If you go back and listen to early episodes of this podcast, um, I would, you know, you guys heard me read tonight. I do a pretty decent job aloud, but when I first started this podcast, it, a five minute monologue would take me two hours to record because my uh, reading skills weren't that great. But I'm looking at a bookshelf with probably close to. 60, 70 World War II books, and I've read probably three quarters of them. And mm-hmm. in the case of your father's book, I read that one four times. I've read Strongman Arm three times. I've read uh, Helmet for My Pillow probably four or five times. I've read Sid, Fid, uh, Sid Phillips' books multiple times. So, And, you know, this is the second time through. And so not only do I read them, but I read them multiple times. So, Oh, yeah. But anyhow, that's going to wrap it up for this episode because I'm starting to lose my voice after talking for 122 minutes straight. <laughs> as always um, for myself Henry Sledge and the missed Jeff Copsetta who should be back next week yeah we hope so Um, we want to thank you guys for continuing to support our podcast and um, you know going to Patreon is great subscribing on YouTube is great but the best thing you can do for a podcast because there's so many of them out there share us with a friend if you know somebody who might enjoy our you know who enjoys world war ii um yeah. who enjoys podcast email them a link send it in a text message post it on our facebook page you can't beat word of mouth advertising so please and send us ideas about things you want us to talk about yes i always forget that i need to add that to my list email us and uh, mail call i was saying the other podcast mail call at wtsp world war two and that is wwii.com so mail call at wtsp world war com, or send us a message on facebook uh, give us ideas something you want to talk about if you yourself have a lot of knowledge on a topic we haven't covered and you think you could provide 30 minutes worth of conversation we will be more than happy to have you on the show um, because after all who better to talk history than other history buffs so please, if you're interested in coming on the show or if you just have some topic ideas or criticisms or comments, whatever, please email us or send us a message on Facebook and we will happily read them. Henry, thank you so much. And uh, we will talk Always. to you all next week. And now this is where I stretch to find this. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>